Hello, fellow Miller. Hello, how are you? And are you restored to health? I'm restored to health. I'm restored to health. I'm slightly, um, still a bit snotty. Information for everybody. Welcome yeah. to the show. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully that's not going to impact the audio quality too much. But um, yes, no, I'm back on my feet and better. Thank you very much for asking. Jolly, jolly good and ready to mill some air. This, this very much year. ready to mill some air. So I've come with... It's a bit heavy, I'm afraid. I don't know if we can make this funny, but well, we can we definitely it make it interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I know that you wanted to ask me a question. So do you want to ask me your question first or would you like me to ruin everyone's evening? Let's let's do the evening ruining first. And um, then we'll maybe lighten up with some nonsense from me. Yeah, OK. I like that. Yeah. Nonsense last. We can ruin the evening first and then we'll bring it back. Good idea. So it's this is a thing that I've learned and it links to something that I listened to, to a podcast I listened to. So I'm going to talk first about the thing that I learned and then I'll talk about the podcast a bit and then we'll get into the discussion because that's all going to make much more sense. So the thing that I learned, because I'm doing my psychology degree at the moment, so that's all wrapping up for the year. I've got to submit a couple of essays tomorrow. But some of what I was reading was about the impact of groups on our behaviour and how that can be a negative thing. Yeah. So I've never been much of what my, my ex-husband would call a joiner. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a bit more of an independent. I'm not, you know, one for, for clubs or social identity or anything like that. But there was um, a study done, <coughs> pardon me, and I think 2006, it was the BBC prison study. I don't know if you've right. heard of that one. No. No, it's good. It, it was a really interesting study. So it was set around a, a prison format. So there were groups of prisoners, there was a group of guards, and this prison operated. So initially, the prisoners had the opportunity to get promoted and have a slightly nicer life if they right. behaved well um, didn't cause trouble, that kind of thing. So while there was the capacity for self-improvement, yeah. people operated or acted in their own interest and the result was general peace and positivity. Right. Because people were trying to get promoted and, and not mess up and that kind of stuff. And then after a while, once everyone that was going to get promoted had been, that ability to get promoted was taken away. Ooh. Right. And that's when the cannibalism started. <laughs> so once, once stealing that from last podcast, um, once they, you can get promoted anymore, then these in-groups started to form with the prisoners. And, and instead of working in their own interest, people then started to look to their immediate community and see how that could be used to benefit them. Right. And then that sort of thing started to get really out of hand. And, it, and in the end, I think the experiment had to be called off because there was about to be a coup. <laughs> and one right. group of prisoners was about to take over and overthrow the guards and, and run the prison properly, in air quotes, that kind of thing. So that just that was what the thing that I learned that illustrated how groups and social identity has the ability to change our actions yes. and influence what we would do. Because none of the people in the experiments were actually prisoners no so they didn't have to no rationally no go through all that they, d they didn't need to 
if if you're thinking about it from a rational mind being like this is i know i'm participating in something mm. you know um so to still get to the point where you're about to overthrow a power system yeah shows that how this group behavior can come in and of course before the promotion got taken away people weren't doing this so yeah. that that does highlight quite well how group identity can lead people into situations where they maybe wouldn't be um and I've, but I've got another point about that but I'll, I'll wrap that up at the end so I learned that thought go talk to Mav about that and then I listened to a podcast called Last Man Standing right which is on Spotify and if you haven't listened to it and you want to ruin another evening where well, you don't listen to this podcast um, <laughs> it's about the fate of a man called John Cantley who was a journalist um covering the war I think in Syria anyway covering um the Islamic State right goings on I think he'd been kidnapped previously he went back he got kidnapped again right. along with uh James Foley who is oh, the yes. guy who was beheaded right yeah. so they were together in the prison so so John Cantley was was there now for whatever reason the captors didn't like James Foley and they did like John Cantley right so that's when John became their video diarist they saw right. him as a propagandist right i think um and had this really harrowing story was in prison there for lots and lots of years went through um some changes both of them had converted whilst they were in prison which is i would call just a very sound survival strategy and would make sense you mm. know um and continued to make videos and there, there were times where he appeared very comfortable with his captors and things seemed to be okay and he was looking quite well there were times where he really didn't look well at all and the the story is essentially trying to find out what happened to him right and it's thought that he was probably killed when Mosul was retaken from Islamic right. State because people that were in that location generally didn't live and no. he hasn't been seen or heard from since and that he hasn't made any more videos <coughs> or reached out to anybody. So that would just make sense. But So that's his story. And that's fascinating. Really, really good piece of journalism. And I recommend you go and listen to it. What it got me thinking about was radicalization and extremism. Yeah. And that then ties back into what I've just said about groups and how group behavior can yeah. then get out of hand and take on a life of its own. And then I want to round that out by also talking about then personal accountability and where is the line of, is there ever a time where we're not accountable for our own actions? And if we aren't fully, how much could group pressure or social identity kind of be blamed for that, if it can at all? Oh, very interesting. Very interesting questions. Very interesting questions. Off you go. Uh, yeah. So, um, I think the thing about groups is fascinating. And um, I've got a book here, which I can't remember the name of. So I've just got to turn around. Um, which is, it's called Humankind by Rutger Bregman. And um, he is a psychologist and he's done work on actually how much nicer people are than you think right interesting and one of the reasons one of the things that got him uh interested in writing his book was 
Um, obviously, we all know the story of Lord of the Flies. We do. And the assumption is that that is what happens when you remove authority and people become brutal. And, I think it's what happens to groups of boys. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but in fact, he starts investigating what happened when it happened in real life. Right. And it was a group of boys who were lost somewhere, I think it could have been Indonesia, um, from a school trip that went hideously wrong. Oh, wow. And they actually were lovely. They created a, a society where everybody was treated with fairness. They shared everything. They looked after people that were injured. And um, I think, and I'm not entirely sure, I think in the end, they're able to build a raft and, and jointly get back to civilization. That's good. Is that and, because of resources, though? So you said they shared everything. Is that because they had things to share? Well, they only had the things that they could fish and scavenge and things like that. Right, okay. okay. It was a desert okay. island type situation. Um, but it seems to have, they were, they were interviewed quite thoroughly afterwards, it seems to never have occurred to them to behave other than cooperatively. And, um, you know, I think their parents were incredibly proud because yeah. they actually... Um, quite rightly, actually. Done quite 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 good under pressure quite well under pressure but i said so what that tells me slightly then is that for those boys they felt a premium of cooperation and they felt that all of them would benefit if all of them worked together and it's really interesting because we have so many examples of that not happening yeah and we have so many examples of humans being really very awful to each other yeah um so I, I do wonder, is that a mix of personalities? Is it the lack of gain for one individual by not doing that? Yeah, I mean, you could argue that that possibly, I mean, I don't know. And I'll, I'll, I'll have to read the book because I bought it, but I haven't read it. Um, and I'll come back, we'll talk about it again. But it seems as if one of the things that's crucial in these instances is um, that any group has has leaders and followers in it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And so the personality of the leaders may be crucial. Yes. That if your strongest people are promoting ideas of cooperation, then if you want to be a tow rag, but you're the weakest of the lot, there's not much opportunity for you to do that. Um, but But this, I mean... It it reminds me also of well it's it's about a, what we think about the nature of human beings to yes. some extent, and um, I went to a fascinating lecture uh, a few years ago by the geneticist Steve Jones at the Hay Festival, and um, I'd gone because I hadn't booked anything, and um, I'm I'm hopeless at learning about science. I'm just so hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. And so and so what it turned out that the only thing there were tickets left for was this and he was talking about um the research a lot of twin research um about nature and nurture and um his conclusion was that there is a strong element of um sort of innate tendencies towards certain behaviors yeah and you know, because they know that this is the case because they look at twins 
who were brought up in radically, who adopted a partner and brought up in radically different circumstances. Makes me wonder what the future of psychology is going to be, by the way, because they don't do that anymore. They keep twins together, which makes me think there's never going to be any more psychology. And when all, when all those tw separated twins have grown up and died, um, there's not going to be. But anyway, um, he came to the conclusion that um, the idea that uh, he, he, he framed his discussion um, as St. Augustine versus Rousseau. OK. And. I love this. I love this, partly because of the biographies of the two men, right? So so Rousseau says children are perfectible and they're born perfect in every way and they don't need anything other than to be left in their natural state. But his mistress had 15 plus children and they were sent to the orphanage the moment they were born because they would disturb Rousseau. Right? What a gem. So he thought that that was the case, right? St. Augustine, on the other hand, had a mistress, had a child. Mistress died, he brought up the child. So he was a single parent with a teenage son. Yeah. Right? When he decided that human nature was irredeemably evil. And, and <laughs> what I find so amusing about that is that the person that's had some experience of bringing up a child thinks... Well, Augustine said, basically, you need to be trained. You need to tr to be trained into ways of virtue. And well, you do. You're born into virtue. No, I, you're not. I don't, I don't think you can be. A, because children are tiny psychopaths. And we know that empathy yes. is acquired. Yes. Yeah. And also the natural state of children is filth and anarchy. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. But he never saw that, Rousseau, because he posted. No, because he sent them away. So it was just oh, an imagined really? concept, I suppose. You yes. Know. Yes. Girls with pigtails, kittens in moonlight, that kind of thing. Exactly, exactly like that. Um, so it's quite a lofty place that he was coming from. But, Although but, I do um, think that there's there's something to it, isn't there? Because I was thinking, and I'll let you come back to your point, yeah. uh, about this Islamic State-based podcast that I, I was listening to, about what people can do to each other. Yeah. Because that regime came about because of catastrophic actions and mismanagement yeah. in that area of the world yeah. by the west yeah. largely awful things and so you can see where that anger and resentment comes from but this is still a lifestyle and those actions were carried out the, the beheadings the cruelty the beatings yeah. the secret police all of this this terrible stuff People have to be radicalised to do that. Yes. I You'll agree. find a group of monsters that are ready to go today. Yes. But yeah. the majority of people have to be sold a line. Yes. Yes. And have to have some kind of pressure applied to do it, which tells yes. me that for the majority, that cruelty isn't the natural state of affairs. I I I agree. I, I and I think um, what what is fascinating is thinking about what pathologizes people yeah. to a position where they can dehumanize somebody else because that's what it basically boils down to, doesn't it? Because um, the moment that you say, "Oh, that could be me um, being beheaded," yes, you stop beheading people, yeah, and um, the moment that you um, describe people as less than human, in whatever way you do it, 
um, you are immediately taking the largest and most significant step on that road towards the beheadings. You are, you are. And there's a line from a Terry Pratchett book. You could, that's one of A.D. Bingo. Yeah. There's a line from this Terry Pratchett book, say that a lot, but there is. And again, I can't remember the, which one because I never can. But it's Granny Weatherwax, who's, who's one of my favourite literary characters ever. And, and she says that the root of evil is treating people as things. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And then once you can do that, and I think that's where I got to thinking about that group mentality, because, of course, war makes monsters. Yeah. But I think that some just gravitate to it as well. Yes. You know, it's it's like not everybody who um, carried out the final solution for Hitler was a radicalised person. Some of those guys just loved it. Yes, yes. Mengele was just into it. Yes. Uh, and was a car crash of a, a human being. And I think the danger then is that those people get to be in charge of groups. Yeah. And then those groups get to influence people who would not be doing that under other circumstances yes. so and I think we have to think about the role of fear but then I also have this bottom line where I'm like okay I understand group pressure I understand fear I understand the pressures put on societies that don't have enough mm. but I don't understand the ability to overwrite or override the knowledge that that just is wrong well I think one of the interesting things is, do you believe in any instance that there is an objective right or wrong? And this, of course, is a, is a, is a hot topic in, in terms of um, cultural discourse at the moment. Yeah. And um, if you actually believe that there is some form of moral objectivity, that there are things which are always wrong, there, there can be actions for example, if you said, for example, I killed another human being, but it was in self-defense. My take on that is that does not make killing that person right. It makes it wrong, but justifiable. So I agree. So, so, yeah. so um, when you sort of say to yourself, I have a set of standards that I will always cling to, and one of the interesting things about horror, the world of horror, if you like, the, you know, the worst horrors we can imagine, yeah, um, is uh, is how it also brings forth the most extraordinary heroism. Yes. And uh, it, it's almost like the opposite ends of human experience meet in the most grim circumstances. And um, if you... If you don't have a sense that there are certain things that are objectively always wrong, you it's comparatively easy to start being operational and yes. to say to yourself, look, you know what, maybe I don't really think that it is the fault um, of uh, my neighbours who ran that small jewellery shop um, that Germany is in the state that it is. But I think it might be better for my family if they were gone and I could take over their shop. And so, right. so once you start parking your overarching rights and wrongs, and that, of course, is where radicalization comes in, in one sense, because it, it puts forward a simplistic narrative, doesn't it? Where it you does. don't have to do your own reasoning anymore. You simply have to obey. It does. And I think there's this um, 
this sense of and I see a theme with these regimes of being able to deliver something different and, and kind of telling people the problem isn't here, the problem is with that system over there. Yeah. Yeah. And if we eradicate and just um separate ourselves from that system over there that's the answer yeah hmm. that I think can sometimes really get people going particularly when a community is feeling hard done by yes um you know pre-Nazi Germany had lived through a lot of financial sanctions had lived yeah. through enormous inflation and then famine as a result of the Wall Street crash um things in Iraq Syria uh, were, were really really bad for people generally although there was still massive local opposition to what was happening yes so yes. yeah and i think i think one of the things um that is always the case is that narratives are complex and and different factors are operating at any one time um to come together to make things happen in a particularly bad oh. way. But there are also enough people that are willing to kidnap and beat and torture and sell people. Yeah. And there was one journalist who'd been kidnapped and uh, later on found out that it was the guy that he'd stayed with the night before who'd been not a friend, but a journalistic contact. Yeah. He'd sold him out. Yeah. He barely escaped with his life. Yeah. So I it goes yeah it does go deeper and I think that goes slightly outside the group thing maybe that's just the, that those individuals. So what I think I'm coming back to is that the group of boys that cooperated. Yeah. What was their situation and relationship beforehand? If because if we have a group that has an absence of resentments comparisons, an absence of hardship between each other, that that's going to influence the results once they're in. I mean, a hardship I situation, right? As, as I recall the story, they were, I think, 10 year olds right. in um, a Jesuit boarding school. Okay. Which is, you know, a Jesuit boarding school is not a place where there's likely no resentments. But I no. suppose you might argue they were all equal under a set of rules. Maybe that yeah. was the case. Or they had just good feeling towards each other, no reason for. Yeah. Yeah, no, not that we can know that. No, um, but um, I, I suppose I suppose I think one of the interesting things about what you say about groups is what we, having said my point, you know, going back to my point about about we see the best and we see the worst, we tend to see the worst in groups and the best from individuals in those yes. very very tough circumstances, yeah. and um. Perhaps what we don't do is we don't ever get a grip, because partly perhaps it's not a story, on the people who just said, no, nah, not really, not for me. And and I mean, I'm vaguely obsessed with big chunks of history. And one of the interesting things I think about the um, English Civil War is how many whole communities said, knock yourselves out, we're not getting involved. Yeah. And we want to carry on doing the stuff that we do here quietly. Yeah. We know you're giving us the opportunity for, you know, two pieces of silver a day and a chance to do some rape and murder. But actually, yeah. you know what? The damsons will be ripe soon and I'm going to pick them and make a pie. And 
those people, the, the clubmen, I am, uh, there's something so, to me, heroic about the everydayness. Because your Lord and Master might have said, go and fight. And yeah. you just say, you know what, you're not going to. It's okay, Han, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. And I think that's a sensible response to politics in general, isn't it? Just go and pick the damsons instead. Um, <laughs> no, no, I think you're right that the good things tend to come from individuals because we see, uh, and the more I think about it as we speak here, that, that group behaviour really can have negative consequences because if, if we take it back a few years now when, when the looting and rioting was going on, yeah, both here and in America, yeah. I don't think that, the majority of those people would have gone and done that if there hadn't been people already going and doing that. Yeah, yeah. Because you very rarely, well, one looter is a thief. Yeah, yeah. Well, but once yeah. you get that kind of that that um, zeitgeisty thing of this is what we are going and doing, and you take on that new social identity that allows you to step outside of yourself and what you'd normally do, and then and then you get this extreme behaviour. Well, it's it is very interesting. Funny enough, I was talking to some friends of mine last night about an outbreak of egg stealing in our area oh my god really and you know people leave honesty boxes at the they end do, of the yeah, it happens here too, yeah. um and i was i was i was startled by what their um cctv camera had uh had revealed um and we then had a discussion about the lines in the sand that one draws yeah and to me, the idea of going and stealing eggs from people seems like a very, very long way down a road. But yeah. there were clearly plenty of people who thought that, oh, do you know what? I've popped by, you know, they've got eggs. I haven't got eggs. I just want some eggs. I'll just take the eggs. And I suppose um, one of the problems with... Um, the upholding of standards, if you like, or, or, or ideas of behaviour, is when you feel that you are upholding standards which are no longer widely accepted. Yeah. And um, this is a classic. This is a classic problem of of um, of upbringing, I suppose. Um, that. As a, a parent, you probably try and, and enforce some rules that you got from somewhere, you know, and um, those may not be enforced by anyone else anymore, you know. Um, and depending on how arcane and useless those rules are, I mean, I'll give you a very good example. I can remember um, in our family a, a story uh, that I was, I vaguely remember, but I was told as well about one of my sisters um, uh, asking uh, if she could go up and dance uh, at top, on top of Pops. Right. And my mother said, are you engaged to be married to one of the disc jockeys? Right. And my sister said, no, I'm not. No. Um, you're 16 years old, said my mother. Yeah. And you think you can get on a train to London and dance for these adult men that you don't know? And she said, I'll tell you what, you're not doing it. And of course, then there were floods of tears. Because of course. It turned out that all the other mums had said yes. Yeah. And of course, what we then find out is the way the teenage girls were treated. Right. Was appalling. That of they course. were treated just as a sexual resource for the adult yeah. men. 
So yeah. my mother was actually right. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but so, so there are those moments where people are um, upholding things which are universally true. I mean, yeah. my, my mother unpicking that would say, why would a man of 35 want to talk to a 15 year old girl? But not for any good reason that I can think of. Not for any good reason, unless he has some interest in her, or even is this a circumstance where they're going to be able to get to know each other and maybe develop a friendship that could even turn into something else in the future? Or is is the girl just expected to put on a very short skirt and gyrate? In which case, this is not the basis of, you know... Anything Anything positive, really, is it? But... There's also then how you sift through and you say, well, I don't have to enforce all the things that I learned because I want to develop, I want society to develop and and for some of the old cruelties and so on to go. And and so it is all that, it's that game about how you say, we've got to have some rules we all uphold. Yes. And then what happens, and your looting example is a really good one, if suddenly you're the only person who isn't going out and getting a te- uh, telly from for nothing from Curry's, you begin to feel like a bit of a fool. <laughs> you know, what are these rules for? If these rules are no longer delivering, re- you know, respect. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good point that you make about the objective morality as well, because I've been sitting here thinking about, well, who is it? that says that beheading somebody is wrong if if mm. you take back the weight of history and all the tit for tat and, and i've got yeah. several ways that i think around it a that one journalist didn't cause that problem yeah yeah wasn't his fault yeah and also what does that death do yeah nothing mm. it's for shock value on a video yeah it's an abhorrent act mm. But I have to say, if someone said to me, there's a video go around of someone cutting off a paedophile's head, mm. I wouldn't have the same reaction. No. I wouldn't. So then there is something wrong with my logic there, isn't there? Well, if I, I can attribute value to one life and that can make me the fact that that's been taken in that way has made me feel a way. That if that same fate were doled out to someone that I consider to be lesser because they don't stand up to my standards of morality. Well, you see, I would say it's this is interesting though, because here we get into one of the key problems about pacifism. Yeah. And I have surprisingly little time for Quakers. Because I think the oats or the people? The people. Right. Because I think they were polishing up their moral rectitude and virtue signalling while my father put his life on the line to stop Hitler. Yeah. And actually, if people like my father hadn't put their lives on the line, yeah. and not only that, but given themselves, I mean, a, a, several of my father's friends basically ruined their mental, mental health was gone. Of good shots, completely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we didn't have language for it then either. Or... No, but in the meantime... The Quakers are having a nice little get-together where they sit quietly and say how good God thinks they are. Yeah? yeah? Well, do you know what? You would have gone in a gas chamber if somebody hadn't been prepared to fight. And so what So what we are now talking about, which is your point about the beheaded paedophile, is 
whether or Flip not that for a soundbite. In whether whether or not, in all circumstances, all killing of another human being is always wrong. And I don't believe that because I think that, for example, a just war. So if you don't fight Hitler, Hitler is coming to your land. Yeah. Yes, and he's not and, doing anything good. So exactly, exactly. So it's all very well to say I'm keeping my views, I'm keeping my hands clean and my conscience shiny, and my lovely, lovely glittery soul. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is not damaged or tarnished. But you're requiring someone else to go out and fight your battles for you. It's, or, pacifism is for people who can afford it, right? It's, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And actually, it's for people who've got some other sucker to do the work for them. And yes. um, so we've accepted then, or I've accepted, what they call just war theory, right? So just war says in following circumstances, it may be right to take a life because blah, de blah. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are some things as well that are so abhorrent to us that they subvert morality. Well, okay, let's let's put this in another light then. Let's just think about your your um your scenario that you've said. Um let's say you think that the person is likely to be able to escape from the prison or to um be released and to commit another hideous crime. Yeah. So if in that instance their head was chopped off. It would be not an unalloyed bad in the sense that it would save potentially uh, yeah. someone else being hurt. I mean, I've got, I'm actually quite seriously anti-capital punishment because I don't think we ever have good enough systems. And I, I am think... because of the risk of uh, wrongful conviction. Exactly. exactly. It's, a, it's a huge, uh, for me, I think there are some cases if it was such a slam dunk. Yeah. The DNA was all over it. They've said they've done it. Yeah. Or there's something that's it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. But we have too many. I, I, mean, I think, okay, I'm, this is American statistics now, yeah. where it's like 2% of convictions are wrongful convictions. But if you're thinking 2% of that population, that's like 200,000 people yeah. who are in prison when they shouldn't be. Yeah. And, and the idea of someone going to their death when they shouldn't. That's is It's horrific. Uh, well, here's another thing, then. It can't be taken back. Here's another thing, um, and I know this depends completely on people's philosophical um, background, is whether you know, whether you believe that someone is capable of redemption. Right. And I have to say I'm an absolute sucker for tales of redemption of various kinds. You like a grow-up story. I like, uh, yeah, and I like that. I like the, um, I like the, the the stories really where someone who has done terrible things um admits that they are wrong and tries to atone or yes. tries to in terms of prisoners one of the things that's always a really good good sign apparently is if they stop protesting their innocence yeah yeah and they say, yeah, I did do it. And it's a yeah. terrible thing. And I can't believe that I did do it. And um, so so I suppose in those instances, then you'd say, well, 
the person becomes renewed in a way such that they are no longer the dangerous thing that they once were. But of course, the problem with that as an idea is what if they're lying? Well, and, and you put people at risk finding out, don't you? Exactly, exactly. You put people at tremendous risk finding out. And of course, people can be very convincing yeah. in what they say and people learn to play a system. I mean, it's it's known to me, I've never been near a prison, that you, if you want to be considered for parole, you have to take responsibility for what you've done. Yeah. So like you say, there could be many, many a glittering monster yeah. looking you dead in the eyes and saying, I'm terribly, terribly sorry. Yeah. I should never do that again. Then mm. whistling away. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think that's it, that. That is one of those onion problems that I think you could talk round around, which of course is what I'm here for. Um, <laughs> but but yes, yeah. I, I think I come down the same side as you is that we probably shouldn't kill people for what they've done. In case, just in, in case. case, because then it, and then if you if they haven't done that and they haven't deserved that punishment and they are murdered, this is murder. Mm. Yeah, and then you just have that circular situation, and it's not like you can make any kind of reparation for that, really. No, it's um, it it, it can't be undone. It's a, such a finite act. Yes, yeah, and and mm. and you then have uh, a murdering state, effectively, and it yes, and, and, and exactly. to some extent, I think one of the reasons why I'm absolutely anti-capital punishment is because an awful lot of me is is an anarchist and i think that states do things badly a lot of the time i mean it's interesting that we were talking about an organization called itself islamic state yes it didn't didn't call itself islamic um unstructured gathering of right uh, a few blokes in a cave making videos but no, and it's really interesting how that whole thing came about. And I recommend, I, I'm going into a bit of a wormhole about it now of looking into the history of Islamic State or Daesh, as it's, as it's also called. Um, and, and the personalities and the events that have come round because, you know, there were still sort of opportunities for democracy in that part of the world. But it's funny how, you know, the, well, the extreme voices come over loudest sometimes. I think those are the people that are the most motivated. Yeah. And um, the most motivated people are often also the most dangerous because people with balanced views kind of aren't going to get excited enough. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To establish a main power system, right? Because we're all like, well, I could see that both ways. Anyway, grocery shopping. Yeah. But 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 of course, one of the issues that that um, is the case with with the Middle East, certainly, is the way in which we we came stumbling into our, you know, ineffectual democratic system through at least 500 years of mistakes and blind alleys and attempts to do things in a different way that absolutely failed, right? Yes. And I often hypothesize, given that the Chinese were so far our technological superiors, um, what if they had turned up in 1450 in England and saying, look, this was the Roses nonsense, it's got to stop, right? What you actually need to do is establish a proper bureaucracy, tax your country in a fair and progressive way, etc., etc., right? Now, 
They'd have been beheaded immediately. They would have been beheaded immediately. Immediately. What are you talking about? What are you but, talking about? It's divine right. Yeah, but sorry, I've got sorry about that. Phone ring. Shouldn't I should switch phone off? Um. Yeah. What? Um. What I would say then is one of the problems with how we look at um, countries throughout the world. It's a kind of philosophical imperialism that we say you need to get to the same situation as us as quickly as possible. We didn't get here as quickly as possible. We had our time to right. have coups and counter coups, to have terrible forms of, 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 of you know, you know, we, we say that we'd had a House of Commons in, in, in um, 1760. No Catholic was allowed inside it. No working man or woman was allowed inside it. No, it no, it wasn't very all. common. But... Yeah, and, and, and so I, and I think Britain is particularly bad about this because, because we don't have a revolutionary moment. We have a series of revolutionary moments. We tend to regard our... Um, sort of the development of our um, society as being almost organic and optimally created, and so yeah. we sort of say, "Well, oh look, can we see, can we see anything a bit like us in this country?" That you know, um, and of course, other countries are not like us, and they are not no, in the not. same place. No, they're not. Um, and that's difficult again. Yeah. Because that was largely an ideological war as well. Yeah. And people railing against a system that is so dramatically different. Yeah. But then I think in some ways that's also very important to do because in the modern era, for anyone to be banning a woman from driving or going to school yeah. is also unconscionable. Yeah. I just shouldn't happen. Okay, that, that might not warrant a hellfire missile. Yeah. <laughs> Granted. <laughs> that could be considered an overreaction, but... Um, yeah, but then you see, you see, there is always a danger. There is a danger of this, which is we cannot think of anything worse than that, right? And in terms of the society in which we've grown up, yes. And I have no, I, I, I have absolutely no inkling whatsoever towards radical Islam. None, right? However, Do you promise? I promise. I absolutely okay. promise. However, I have heard religious conservatives of all sorts talking about the society that we live in in what I would call catastrophic catastrophically critical lines right yeah and if you say to um you know uh, somebody who let's say uh brings up their their children in some form of, of a very traditional uh, religious background that it's perfectly okay for a 12 year old to make friends with people she doesn't know on tiktok and wear a skimpy dress because they all want to see her body yeah they would say, well, you tell us it's wrong for a 12-year-old to be married against her will when your 12-year-olds are, prostit are prostituting themselves on the internet. And, and so, so my, my point is, and this is where I get back to the idea about we have to have some things that we agree are wrong in all times. And, and, and I come back 
probably to the basic idea that all human beings are equal. That is that's that's probably the the wellspring yeah. of so I will I will stand against that argument and I will say actually she has as many rights as anybody else. Yeah. And because it's the choice. Yeah. That's yeah. the bottom line. It's the choice. And also I think how these things are seen you know, the idea of the skimpy dress. Well, if uh, the idea of a 12-year-old in a skimpy dress triggers something in you, that's an examination to make with yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. granted, there will be some predators out there and you can't stop those and TikTok can be a dodgy thing. But I think for the religious conservatives concerned about the young generations today, I would just point out that they are concerned with being nice to each other. Yeah. They are concerned with fairness. Yeah, they are concerned with making sure that everyone has enough and that everyone is treated properly. Yeah, they are behaving in the most Christ-like fashion. Oh yeah, of any generation that's come yeah. before. Yes, I mean, I suppose I'm I'm not really, in a sense, talking about traditional Christians, although I know there are some of those, particularly in America, that that end They're up around. being not. They're around. I, I think religious conservatives they won't like to hear this. Any of them, yeah. but come in a mold. Yeah, and they're I, never that I, far you're, away. You're, but but I suppose what my I suppose what my queasiness is and my right. queasiness is about um, somebody in North America or Western Europe telling people in sub-Saharan Africa what they need to be thinking or telling people in Iraq what they need to be thinking. And yeah. that, so this is, this is how I unpack it in a way, is I have a real queasiness about that because I think... I do, I do, I do, because the we have a tendency towards that real ideological stamping. Yeah. There's a bit of a mistrunchable thing about it. You know, I, I'm big, you're little, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it sort of attitude. Of, uh, you However, know, the crusades are over, but in our heads they're sort of not. It's like, you're going to be like us but, or but else. You see, but you see, in, in, in some senses, I then say to myself, well, um, so so what we're talking about in a sense, is what is your what is the irreducible core of your beliefs? Yeah, yeah. And what is it that you would write on your banner to start your own crusade? Because if you're saying, if you're saying, actually there are things, and I believe the equality of human beings is probably what I would write on my banner. Yeah. Yes. If you believe that those things are universally true and are true throughout time and in all geographical locations, then you cannot but rail against people, whatever cultural background they come from, if they are going against that core belief. And that I think I think that is it for me as well. I think it's that um everyone is equal and I and I've always, always railed against the bully. Yeah. It's been a red flag for me since I was a child. I remember standing up to a teacher. And my friend had worn some ugly shoes. We were in primary school. These things were terrible. They were made of rubber. They had this big blocky heel on. They were everything we weren't supposed to have. But I also knew that the mother had no money. Yeah, yeah. You know, this child came to school actively smelling bad. So these were the shoes. Yeah. Right, this was it. And this teacher had gone off at my friend and... um, told her she couldn't wear those and sort of mum and all this. So I remember going up to her at the end of the class and, and sort of saying, look, these these are the shoes. These are all she's got. This is what her mum can afford and you need to yeah. not do this. I was like, Lil. <laughs> yeah, 
little. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've always had that a, a real inherent dislike of unfairness. Yeah. And I think that's what I see. And it's, it sounds strange to take something like ISIS and distill it down to unfairness. But I think that's what I kind of see it as. Yeah. So, because they also invaded those countries that they yeah. were in power in. You know, everyday Muslims going around Mosul and the other countries, they, they weren't into it either. No one was having any fun under this regime. So I, I think, I, yeah, I see it as entitlement and unfairness. Uh, and it bred just such a massive amount of cruelty in it breaks my heart in it on a couple of levels I've, I've said this before at the start of the podcast so I won't bang on about it again it was that it was such an unavoidable thing yeah and I think that came about because of th- this thing that you've discussed of, of the west having a tendency to be like well we're going to tell you how this has to be yeah and actually if you don't comply with that we're going to flatten it but you know what the, the, there is something else about groups that I don't think we've mentioned yet which is um actually making your mind up is hard work entirely and especially when people are on the in a day-to-day pressurized situation perhaps because they're living in a country where just going to get water is a is a sweat yes so you've got a 14 mile a, a day round trip to get water and somebody sits down and says would you like to discuss how this country should be run from basic first philosophical principles and someone else says follow me and we'll build you a well yeah you're gonna go with well guy aren't you you are gonna go with well guy and i think this is where uh, we have to be um in a sense dividing our moral outrage into followers and leaders in the sense that if we provided a viable alternative for pre-war German citizens, then they almost certainly would not have in the numbers that they were followed someone who was so extreme. Because... We know they wouldn't, because until the Wall Street crash, they, no one was interested in Hitler. Exactly. exactly. Mein Kampf came out, people, it did not sell well. People yeah. were like, who is this weird, angry guy? Yeah. Go home, you're drunk. And people they weren't had... into it until everything was on the line. And yeah. then there's something about someone with that real certainty. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They could be like, this is it. This is the answer. This is what we're doing. That's the problem. It's not you. It's over there. And yeah. we're going to fight what's over there. And, and I think that that can get people going. Um, I think there's something, you know, fear obviously plays a part because that was a regime, both of them, Nazi Germany and ISIS, where if you weren't going along with the status quo, well, you yeah. were also tortured beheaded whatever it was um yeah. i mean the bodies were piling up quite yeah. seriously so i can understand if someone's in a position to be like if i just do this and i keep my head down that's not going to be me yeah yeah and i have a problem with it from a philosophical ideological standpoint would i do anything that i could to survive yes yeah. i'd do anything i could to survive i know that so there by the grace once again you see, it's it's interesting, isn't it? We all imagine ourselves that we would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that we would be the White Rose, Sophie Scholl, uh, you know, and the. White oh, Rose. I can tell you, I wouldn't. And um, I I like to think that I would be involved in some sort of sneaky stuff. I don't. Oh, I do that. I I go covert. Yeah, I'd find small ways for sure. But I know that um, 
the the two um, John Cantley and James Foley they both converted while they were over there and, and there was quite a bit of flack for this but I I saw that as just that's very clever but but also um, the interesting thing about that is that sometimes sometimes I'm like I I I've got a friend called Bob right and um, he's had the most amazing life he's done the most amazing ridiculous travels and if you talk to Bob he just says things I've probably told you about it he says things like while I was smuggling the Shah's broodmares over the mountains. And you th- yeah, and you, one of those people, right. And that's like a clause. And you, you think, even... how did you find the time? Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway. I've been looking for the remote for a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, he was in a situation where he um, was, he found himself captured by bandits in Afghanistan. And they were bandits of a, um, a a very determined uh, religious bent and they said accept Allah or we will behead you and he said bizarrely he's not a particularly religious man but bizarrely he said all I could think of was the Christmas carol service in the village where I live oh my goodness and he said no I won't I believe and he's, I mean, he honestly is the least religious. He's not, no, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, not yeah. interested. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but he said, I said, no, he said, no, I won't. What are you going to do? Right. And this guy had a sword at my throat Gosh. in the story, Bob's throat in the story. And um, he said, actually, it felt like it was going to be much harder to yield than to stick to what you knew was That's right. That's incredible. Yeah. And the man then said, threw the sword down, shook his hand, and said, you're a real man. Fair play. Fair and, play. And um, he was stunned by the, the whole, he was stunned by the whole event, really. He was stunned that he should actually be kind of heroic in this way. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, it, it was, there was nothing in him that, led him to believe that he would do that under pressure but he did no no but <laughs> yeah because i i mean maybe i'd do something i don't know i think i'd say that's fine sign me up and then just sing 10 green bottles to myself through prayer time or whatever it was <laughs> but, i don't but, know but... But, but it just felt like to him and this is a really interesting sort of dynamic he felt the mess would be worse and i think so i think that does come back really well to my earlier question to you which was where does that personal accountability stop? So he was not um, susceptible to the new group identity in that moment. He absolutely kept his own identity and said, you know what, I'm fine with it. That's how I'm going to go out. Mm. So is it a case of group identity or social identity can lead us to do things until we all reach our own personal bottom line i think i think it's i think that's probably the case and i and i wonder whether there's something in there about optimism and pessimism yeah because he wasn't entirely sure he'd ever get out of it right and his feeling was if i yield in some way to um, the pressure I'm being put under, and I still don't get out. I'm a double loser. 
because I don't actually. So, so here's the thing: Did he genuinely yeah. believe he could escape? No, he actually at the time he was just he, you know, whatever. That was it. Um, and just so, going on instinct, really. Yeah, and so I also think that we don't know any of us how we would act until we are at that moment. Um. No. Whatever that moment is, because I have I've reached bottom lines and stuff with other things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a there's a film, the Kingsman film, the first one, when Eggsy's asked to shoot the dog. Yeah. Now I can tell you that it wouldn't matter what opportunity you were holding in front of me, I would not shoot a dog. No. Wouldn't do no. it. Would convert to Islam to try and live another day. Yeah. wouldn't shoot a dog so it's what is everyone's bottom line and i think i think yeah. we've arrived at that's when the, the social identity doesn't matter anymore so it's yeah. what matters most to you yeah and and it was very interesting it wasn't that he was thinking about he didn't have a kind of picture of like you know little jesus meek and mild in his mind he was just thinking of like my no, normal, it didn't see my a vision of the life. virgin mary or something like no, that no he didn't it was it was no. it was like my normal life Yes. going to sing a Carol service. Bethlehem in yeah. the village church at Christmas and I'm not going to give it up. Fair um, play to well, he's, he's told the story, so it worked. <laughs> he has lived to tell the story. <laughs> but, but I think one of the one of the things about it though is is that thing about what is the what is the capacity for heroism of people who you might not think would be, you know, would we know a hero? If they were beside us in the queue at Tesco's, I don't think we would. No, because there's no need for heroism there. No. Well, no. it depends how busy it gets. I've seen some <laughs> things, but yeah. generally, yeah, you know that that isn't the time. So yes, and, and maybe that comes down to what you say about you know um, expecting great things from individual people and terrible things from groups of people. Yeah. Yes. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe that is it. But maybe mm. also. Um, Maybe also there's something about um, martyrdom, maybe, which is easier in a group as well. Because I saw the other day, I saw I so. um, uh, on Twitter a picture of um, uh, a stained glass window showing a great line of Carmelite nuns. I mean, there must have been 50 in, it, in them, queuing up to be um, guillotined. Wow. And... Um, that's the definition of idiocy, isn't it? <laughs> but I wondered, I thought to myself about those those nuns. I wonder I wonder how many okay, how many of them were thinking the same thing as they queued up? Were they thinking this is actually a good thing, I'm now going to go to heaven and all is going to be well, yeah? Or were they all thinking incredibly different things? How has my life gotten to this point that I'm like 13th yeah. in line and the guillotine is up yeah. there and I've already seen Sister Dominica? Just and, I, and I think you're right about the the martyrdom being easier in a group because without the group, there is no martyrdom. Yeah. It needs to be witnessed, right? Absolutely. Or else you're just dead. Well, that's the, that's the it's a Greek word for witness, isn't it? Martyr. Is it? Yeah. Huh. Look at me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, because, like, you know, without... The people to acknowledge that that's what's happening that that's what places the value on that act yeah. i think that also there's now i don't know the story there i think in those kinds of situations there is a part of us that 
doesn't really believe it's going to happen to us. Yeah. Until you've laid down. Yeah. And that the blade's gone and that's it. Because yeah. we've seen this as well. Um, I, I don't know if they were conditioned for that. I'm not sure what the history is there. Um, but historically, where there have been mass killings or horrendous acts, whatever it is, kind of like the ISIS murder videos and everything, yeah. there have been rehearsals. Right. It's very easy to condition a human being to feel safe. Yeah. If a certain scenario is acted out and nothing bad happens, they right. will then go into the real one unconcerned and remain calm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, we saw that with the Jonestown massacre. Those people had rehearsed that so yeah. many times. So many times. So when it came to actually be cyanide, it was like, oh, oh dear. That's but the action was, it, nothing bad had happened before. The action was practiced. And so you go through with it. Yeah. Um and I didn't know that, but that is fascinating. It's quite a scary thing. It's quite a scary thing. Yeah, they they'd rehearsed it quite a lot of times. They did that with the captives in the ISIS beheading videos as well, where they go like go and record the message, get to it, you haven't been killed. And so of course when it's the real deal, the person is sat there completely calm. It's a Judas goat yes, effect, yes. basically. It goes into yes. the slaughterhouse, comes back out, and therefore it's not concerned after a while. Yes. Um but it's 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 actually disturbingly easy to create a sense of safety and yes. peace for people who yeah. are not safe yeah i suppose the other thing the other thing that comes into play here is and this is i know this is dark uh, <laughs> i told you is, i'd ruin everyone's evening is death, the, is death the worst thing that could happen to you no so for example Let's say you were to let's say you were to be at a stage in your life where you had lots of difficult stuff going on, and you found yourself in a position where you could throw yourself into a burning building to save a child. Yeah. And you saved the child and perished in the the, the um in, in the process. Maybe that it's not an entirely irrational thing to do in some it's sense. It's not. It's not. No, so I, I think death isn't the worst thing that can happen, but it is the last thing. Yeah. And I think that's what keeps us avoiding it. Yeah. Because yeah. let's say, you know, you could go down a road where you die, I don't know, something terrible, really awful will happen or there'll be death. I think most people would pick the really awful thing because there'll still be something on the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah. that could be better and I think that's your optimism pessimism yes because I've yes. read my Voltaire go yeah. and read Candide if you haven't yeah yes we must cultivate our garden yes um so 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 yes and, and I, I I agree with you there in that scenario if, if you if you if you know that there isn't very much good to look forward to then yes go out in an act of heroism if you can yeah. for the greater good I think the instinct is still to try and survive because there'll be something I don't think that as people we, and I know I don't, I don't do well with the concept of nothingness. No. Because we've always existed for ourselves. Granted, yeah. a lot of our lives we don't remember and our memories are quite scant and fleeting yeah. and malleable. Yeah. But we still ha always have a sense of self. You know, even when you're asleep, you're not gone. No. There's a dream. There's a sense mm. of the organism mm. happening, right? So, and I think it's that, that terror of that great, looming darkness of where we all there are theories there are theologies there are 
entire ways of life based around yeah. what comes next but the bottom line is that no one knows until you go yes 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 no that's and i think that's why we're fascinated with black holes because yes. it's the same thing isn't it what's in there uh. <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. yeah no 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 i think it is it is interesting but of course one of the things that i always think about um I suppose the whole fall of communism, for example, um, was that communism being the one of the ultimate materialist philosophies, um, they could not cope, the Russians could not cope with the thought that the Mujahideen in Afghanistan didn't mind dying. Right. Because the Russians did mind dying. Yeah, you know, they were patriotic. They were fighting for Mother Russia. They were even if they were full of the vodka, but they still minded dying. Minded dying, yes. And um, you know, I believe that to a lesser extent, a similar thing happened in Poland, because you know, to stand in front of a tank and sing Ave Maria, you know, basically shoot me and I'm going to heaven. Yeah, that 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 actually disarms the tank, and right and. Then we come down to what is the power of will, human will, both for yes. good and for evil. Yeah? yeah, because the physics of a of a shell from a from a from a tank hitting you at point blank range, and the biology, the physics and biology of that are grim. Yeah, yes. But ultimately, yeah. if you stand there, you know, long enough, looking at the face of the man who's flipped the top of the tank open, he'll jump down and join you. Yes, if or he doesn't. Go, or he'll shoot go away. <laughs> or, or, he he or he'll or shoot, he'll shoot you. But, and it's that thing of having to be okay with, with whichever one happens. Yeah. 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 And I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about what the greatest generation is and... Um, you know, the people who did live through the war. Um, I think there's something about the kind of bravery that they experienced, which actually is true about ordinary things that happen in your own life. So yeah. the first time that someone that loves you, that you love and who loves you dies, oh. it's an absolute train wreck. Yeah, it is. And... All you can say is to yourself, I don't know how I keep breathing. A lot, you know, that, that, that certainly was my... That terrible feeling, feeling. Yeah. 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 And um, when it's the fourth or fifth person, although it is still incredibly painful and... Obviously, the grief is so personal because it's not just to do with you, but it's to do with your relationship with them. Yeah. You do have the knowledge that you have survived it. And I always think that the world is really divided into two types of people, those who are battle-hardened and those who are not. And the people who are battle-hardened have a lot of the Dr. Pepper, what's the worst that can happen philosophy. They do. Yeah. They do. You know what? So what? You kill my loved ones. Happened before. Yeah. And the people who really experience fear are the people for whom things are going quite pleasantly. 
yeah, it's an interesting point. I think there is, yes, there, there is definitely something to be said for the experience of emotions, not necessarily for the lessening of the pain, but for the knowledge of the process. Yes, 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 absolutely. This is the stage, then this is the stage, then this is the stage. Yeah. And then you come to a point where you feel it the same, but mm. you know how to navigate it. And that takes out some of that that awful gut-wrenching fear of not knowing how you're going to cope with something. Yeah. The next time it happens, you feel it in its entirety and in all its intensity, but you know how you're going to cope with it. Yeah. And that gives you a, a strength that kind of can't be messed with. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll give you an, an example uh, that for, for, from... Um, my experience is um, sometimes when someone's suffered a loss and, and you don't know what to say. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's always and, and being, being a, you know, a, a bird of words, <laughs> a wordy now, bird, a wordy bird. I get quite frantic about wanting to, to give the right statement. I, I hate it, but there isn't anything. But, but one thing I have learnt is that actually anything and everything that you say isn't as important as a hug. But yeah. And actually the most important thing is that you turn up. Yes. And in a way, if you paralyse yourself, you know that, that it's a management expression, isn't it? Oh, are we letting perfect be the enemy of good? Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, well, I have been guilty almost guilty because I've actually dragged myself into the situation where I've, of, of, of doing that about consoling people. Yeah. And saying to myself, I've got to go through that door. I've got to speak to that person now. And I've got to say something. I don't know what to say. I don't I'm, know what I'm going to say. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to say. And oh, it'll be awful if it's so awkward and I haven't said the right thing. Blah, blah, blah. Well, how about it's going to be awful if you don't open that door and that person feels well, abandoned by you. Right. And actually and that would be worse. And that would be far worse. And sometimes you just look around and I kind of do a little bit of a kind of, I just almost get inspired by what is there. Yeah. In my line of sight, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, there's, a, there's a kind of cushion. Didn't Bert always love that cushion? Yeah. <laughs> and you think, I can't believe I said something so banal. Have I, have I, what have I, this is an entry for the British Banality Awards, yeah? But, have me a shovel, I'll be outside digging my own hole. Yeah. Yes, but it's better to say, didn't Bert like that cushion, than to not come. Yeah, and to not be present. And it's about being present, isn't it, with people, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So there we are. Group identity extremism Grief. martyrdom <laughs> yeah martyrdom grief grief and you I had got, a question for me yeah well i came across a concept and i was quite interested in this concept and it, the question i was going to ask you about then fed into the thing i learned right so i was going to talk about um i haven't played enough games computer games in my life i don't all oh, right okay right 
And I rather have a fancy to play Assassin's Creed. Do you? Yes. How interesting. Um, but what draws um, you to Assassin's Creed? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I don't know why. It's just because it's a historical thing, and I like. Right. Okay. Things. Yeah. 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 Um, and I wanted to ask if you were talking to somebody who hadn't played any games. Re no, that's not true. I have played some games. I've played The Sims. I've played Civilization. Right. If you said, but, oh, but a modern game, because this is the problem, I want to play like old games that I'd have to buy like a 25-year-old computer in order to be able to play. Right. But what game would you recommend to somebody, somebody, you, you've totally not expected this, did you? No. <laughs> no. But if you were to, if you were to say, here's someone who, doesn't know much about what's out there in the market. Right. You know, used to play Donkey Kong. Yeah. Right. Or whatever. What's a good game to play? So there are several that spring to mind. So I was a little bit in that position in that I got into games really late um, yeah. by my partner. I hadn't played a video game at all. So there are a couple that I can recommend. And that's just because that's been my experience of buying myself a second-hand switch and starting to game yeah um so there's a really nice i don't know if you ever wanted to do any two-player stuff but there's a really nice one called unravel which right. is a collaborative game where you've got two little thread people and they just go off and have adventures and have to do assault courses and help each other round stuff so that's a really nice one it's quite easy yeah. on the controls the one that i started with which actually was a very stressful but also weirdly therapeutic is a game where you are literally just in charge of turning traffic lights red and green right and you have like several streams of traffic and you have some vehicles which are higher priority than others so an ambulance will come along and then that will have to go and you get a timer and it clacks around um so you have to work out how you're going to prioritize the traffic each way and of course if you get it wrong there's a crash <laughs> then that's yeah. not good um so, yeah, you sit there and direct several lanes of traffic and it's very repetitive and rhythmical, but you have to really concentrate on it. So that's great. My favourite game, which has become part of my personality now, I could only play kind of 2D games. I tried to play Zelda the other night. It was in 3D. You had to move the camera and move the person at the same right. time. Couldn't handle it. Need to practice. That's going to be a by myself activity because I don't do well when I'm being watched and things aren't going to plan. Right. Um, so I got a bit freaked out. I was like, I don't like it. So I'm going to have to practice that one. But my, my favourite game is a game called Hollow Knight. Right. Which is just so gorgeous. It's incredibly violent. You go around fighting things and stabbing stuff and you go off on quests. And you have to do lots of parkour around different platforms and all sorts of things. And you meet a different baddie around every corner. And you play this little bug <laughs> called the Vessel. It's right. got these little horns. And he's got a little cape and he's got a nail, which is like his little sword. And he just skips around the place. Um, and, and the idea is it's this bug world, which has been infected by some sickness. And you have to go and basically sort it out and whack things. And it's got gorgeous visuals, amazing graphics. It's so lovely to look at. And the music is just heavenly. Um, and it 
it's one of these where the world expands with you as you go around and explore stuff so you can unlock different bits and then you'll get an ability in this area that allows you to go back and do this other thing here and you can rescue these little grubs by smashing jars and they get all happy and go back to their grub dad and then if you visit he gives you money and it's just it's just a really nice way to spend some time so there's my impassioned review of hollow knight which is about 10 pounds on the switch so you know so I, so I'm going to say um, I'm really interested in um, the impact that this has, and 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 I'm um, the concept about lean forward and lean back technologies. I uh, I was is something that I I do believe in. I do believe that sometimes, particularly if you if you've got if you've got a lot of things on your mind or you've got a lot of stress or whatever, yes. sitting back watching a nice drama, yeah, often doesn't clear your head. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't. so I believe um, that there's something to be said for actually an entertainment process in which you have to be involved. I agree with you so much. So one of the reasons that I actually wanted to get the Switch was because it would give me and my partner something to do that wasn't just consuming TV content. Yeah. Because it's interactive and you have to do something. And there is something about playing a game. And I completely agree with what you said, because I find it as well. At the end of a big, busy work day, just sitting and looking at something isn't going to be a wind down activity. That's going to lead to me picking away at some more work or Mm. doing something else when I should just be relaxing. Whereas if you just sit and you've got the game there, because it's, it's quite technical. You have to have coordination for it. Mm. There's a lot of problem solving with these things because, okay, some games out there, it's very clear and it's very scripted for you, what you have to go and do. But a lot of what we call the open world ones, it's not. And Mm. you have to sort of work it out and, go around it and it's not always obvious and and it can be quite difficult so I think that there's a lot more merit to computer games than people necessarily give them in mainstream media and as for the argument that it's made people violent I would just urge everyone to look at this thing called history and I promise you that that's not true the video games are not the problem it's just us but also I think there's something to be said about the fact that if you think about a uh, group in modern society that is given almost no respect, I would say young men would be that group. Yes, absolutely. And because they are overwhelmingly the consumers of, 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 of this art form, yeah, um, I mean, I do not expect that at the Hay Festival there's anyone talking about um, gaming. And yet, it's an industry bigger than film. Yeah, it is, and it's it encompasses so many art forms as well. You know, if you have a listen to the soundtrack for any Final Fantasy game, yeah, oh, it's gorgeous. Well, play some of them on Classic FM. That's how I came across it. So, if you want people, young people, to be interested in classical music, well, your video games are the biggest gateway to that that, that you're going to get. Well, it's it's interesting because obviously we're talking about you know ten fifteen years ago now, but but my girls used to play um, quite a lot of Civilization, right? And so when they would get to school, they would know that um, that you had to build the um, 
the light that Alexandria was where the lighthouse was, the great right. lighthouse, and that Heliconassus was where the mausoleum was. Right. That's on the game. And um I also, I mean, I'm a big fan of civilization. One of the reasons why I think it's the very antithesis of what people think gaming is, because if you just biff people when you're playing Civ, you've got to be incredibly lucky to win. And as the different versions, I mean, I think I'm on Civ 5 or 6 or something now, right? As the different versions have come out, the gameplay involves more and more aspects of running a civilization, like yeah. building monuments so people come and you get tourism, right? Right. Just chopping people to bits with a pike, which is fun and is For part sure. of the game. Yeah. But you've got to do that and build your monuments and create trade routes and explore the world. I mean, yeah. one of my girls yeah, used to say when she was playing Civ, and the map comes obviously as it does, you know, it comes to light bit by bit. She used to say, explore the black, or the black is yours to explore. Amazing. I think that was a great philosophy, you know, for a young person going out into the world. Yes. The yeah, black definitely. is yours to explore. Um, definitely. There, there are lots of merits to video games. It's much more active uh, and mentally engaging hmm. than someone sitting and watching eight episodes of whatever. Yeah, yeah. Which is purely a passive activity. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm constantly intrigued by the fact, and I, I'm sure it is to do with the fact that these boys, boys of a certain uh, age who are considered to be the ideal consumers of it because yes you do get the odd game review in a in a serious paper but um people don't regard it as i mean you know i know a couple of young people who've, who've gone away to study game design you know as as a you know planning planning their jobs in that right field. And I notice, I notice the different reaction. So it says, oh, this is my son, Timmy. He's studying film. This is my son, Tommy. He's studying game design. People don't take and it seriously. The first group, they're all going, oh, lovely. Can we talk about Ingmar Bergman? The second group, they're all going, oh, God. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like you say, it's 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 a bigger industry than film. Yeah, and I I don't see that it isn't a vehicle for massive creativity. It is, it is, it is. It's it's, it's absolutely. It's one of the most creative entertainment forms that I've come across because you have to have everything covered on so many bases. There has to be a plot. There has to be the soundtrack. It has to look good. But then you have to be able to cater for the individual choices that the player is going to make. Yeah. So you have to have options. It has to fit together. You have to have considered all your variables. What if they don't jump up there first? What if they go down there? What's going yeah. to be down there? Where does yeah, that exactly. link to? Then what happens? So yeah. it's it's such a, a huge undertaking. Um, and I think to be able to plan that kind of thing, it, it, it take, takes a massive amount of, of logic and, and strategic precision. So and it's I... a shame that it's seen as something that's slightly wafty because it certainly isn't. And I, I wonder, too, because, I mean, I like a board game, right? I do like a board game. And um, that, again, is considered to be 
a bit of a stupid way of spending your time. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that's a shame. So we've got a board game cafe right. in a town near here. I'm, it's I'm, great. I'm so wildly excited. Yeah, no, no, come, please. Um, so, so you pay a cover for the table that's like £4.50 or something and you get the table for like four hours or whatever it is and you get an iPad when you sit down, you can just order some snacks and some drinks and it turns up and then you go to this room out the back which is just rammed with board games. Fantastic. Rammed. And you pick what you want and you go and play it. We, we go quite a bit. It's lovely. Well, it's, it's, I, I'm... Um... I've got to the point now that obviously girls have, have left home and so on, but I'm that I'm consciously on the scrounge for people to play board games with. Yeah, um, a very uh, kind friend invited me around for Boxing Day uh, this year, and um, we played some great games. We had such fun, and and we got to the end of a game which is very popular in this. Well, no, it's limitedly popular in this household. It's a game called Vatican. You start as a parish priest and you end up as pope, right? Yeah. And it's it's contemporary. It says things like sex abuse scandal in your diocese. Yeah. Oh my goodness. How do you deal with it? And there yeah. are various options. Um, but um the the first time we ever played it, Henrietta's very competitive with board games, and uh, she couldn't get over the fact that almost at the end. The person who's in the lead has their points halved. Right. And says the first should be last and the last should be first. Oh now, in fact, in fact, obviously, it's a kind of theological joke. Yes. Yeah? But it's also, because um, one of the things I absolutely hate is when you're playing a game and you're only about 60% through the game and someone is so far ahead. Yeah. And... I feel I'm an absolute coward if I say, no, you know what, I fold. I'm right. never going to do anything with just Vine Street and the waterworks, yeah? There's, yeah? there's nothing that I can do. So I fight to the bitter end. But at that point, the person is just absolutely jumping on your face with hobnail boots on. Oh, of course they are. And the great point about Vatican is the person who's about to get into that jumping on the face thing has their points halved. Yeah, around so it's suddenly the game is wide open. So then it's wide open again, which is which is good. Um, so that's so why I enjoy the collaborative games for that reason. I mean, I'm not actually a particularly good loser. I still get particularly juvenile um, about yeah, if it's not going my way. But the, so there was one we played called Pandemic, which right. is you have outbreaks happen and it, there's like these event cards or pandemic cards and just it gives you terrible news that you then have to respond to right. so you have to work together to build these research centers and then treat the infection and try and contain this outbreak um we actually lost it was everyone died of various diseases but it was a lot of fun yeah. um just to have to work together on the problems as well so yeah but i recommend pandemic that's good well um i've got some very uh, kind friends who are obsessed about playing Catan, and and every now and again they just ask me to come and be another per person to play guitar. Yeah. And, and I, I actually think that um, this is, here's, here's, a, here's a sort of uh, contentious comment about games. When you're playing game with somebody or with a group of people, um, as opposed to when you're making conversation, yes. it almost takes the heat out of things. Yes. Because... 
you know that there's a structure to how you're interacting. Yes. And it can be super creative. I mean, I've got a brilliant friend who um, who says that when you play Monopoly, you have to adopt a character. Oh, that's good. And so every time it's your turn, you have to make a statement in your character. <sighs> so basically it ends up being a script. So it's theatre the Monopoly. Monopoly. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's fantastic, and um, it's it. So, but my but my point is, uh, it's a great way of engaging more people in more discussions. Yes. Um, without the thing where you sometimes end up in a um in a heated sort of row, um, or somebody says something you think, oh really? Yeah. Have you done that? Yeah. yeah. Or you simply end up rehashing conversations you had with them before which is always a so there's something i just i just think it's i'm not saying i want all my interactions with other human beings to be around playing games no but there's some sense of joint purpose when you're playing a game yes yeah and it gives you a lot of basis for humor and other interaction that you wouldn't normally have yeah and and especially if it's if it's a game that you either haven't played for a while or you don't you're not very familiar with there's a whole exploring thing about it um, well there is so um my partner and i we started playing war of the ring which is right. the lord of the rings board game yeah which is brilliant yeah. as well yeah. and i'm so fortunate that he's good at reading rule books and remembering <laughs> what figurines are which because he's like right. no that's that's a usual one you're, you're after a leader I'm like, oh that's not which one it is um so the idea is to get frodo and sam in the ring into mordor yeah and so one person plays as like the Fellowship and the other person plays as the Armies of Sauron. <laughs> the Armies of Sauron, they get more turns, they've got more soldiers, they're in more places, they can just absolutely smash the granny out of you. So it's finding those strategic ways to get through. Now, when we started playing, I thought that we would swap over each game. Yeah. But I found that actually we've wanted to stick. Oh, really? With what we did, yeah, because I play the fellowship and I've been, I've never done it, I haven't won it yet, uh, but I've been a square away, right? Um, from managing because there's an awful lot to it, it's quite complicated. Um, so that was interesting as well, how those kind of sides have taken on sort of extra meaning, and now that's that's how we play, that's our team. Well, you know? it, it is really interesting that because. We have a game that uh, we play about the Wards of the Roses, right? And yeah. um, in the game, you are individual nobles, but you control members of the houses of your community. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Right? So you, but you're not allowed to to keep more than, more than, members of more than one house for more than a certain number of turns. Oh, so okay. you've got to kill them. If, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I realised, I realised after playing it how often, that I was instinctively topping off the Yorkists, bish, bash, bosh. Oh, here he goes, Edward IV, he's a goner. Get him he, out. Here goes George Duke of Clarence, down the swanny, etc. But that I would always try and keep my Lancastrians to the very, very, very last minute, right? And and that has now become a bit of a historical obsession for me now. Right. I've got loads of books on the history of the Lancastrians, 
it's it's whether so whether I had um uh, a subconscious yearning towards the Lancastrians, which came out when I was playing the game, or whether the game drove me into the arms of Lancaster. Yeah. I well, mean, this I was, is what I'm wondering. So, what what is it about Lancaster? Do you think that makes you fond? Well, or has I, it come about from how the game works? Is it mechanics of the game, and are you more likely to win if you do that? Okay, two things I think. First of all, um, I am very very intrigued by the fact that a Welshman from Pembroke ends up being king. Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's that's a plus. That's one thing. Yeah. The other thing is that I am of I think of all historical characters that I am most interested in and would most like to write a novel about, it's Henry Tudor's mother, Margaret Beaufort. Okay. Because she was a woman who exerted such agency. Yes. In In a time where most women were not. And you know historians even kind of most traditional type of historians say things like the 15 year old margaret negotiated her wedding and chose her spouse right and you're thinking really hang on yeah no one was choosing their spouse yeah but she was she 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 was she wrote to loads of people saying i'm a widow now right so who's on the table type of thing how about it lads yeah and i suppose what i absolutely love about it is that she was very pragmatic so she's a very good political role model that she doesn't she doesn't ever kind of die in a ditch but she never loses her own integrity right and she lived long enough to see her grandson crowned king Yeah. yeah um Having had, and, and this is, I suppose, one reason why I, I do like her. So, so she had the, a baby at thirteen. Gosh, which was, I mean, everyone assumes she didn't have any more children, right? And everyone assumes that was because the delivery was so terrible. And I think right. it was probably a fair bet. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. First husband then has has already just died so she's actually a widow but she's a widow at 13 with a small baby oh my god and this is so much trauma of course yeah that you would think she would just be looking for some quiet sheltered way of just going through just quietly getting on with things yeah instead of which she's just like out there doing stuff and and yeah and I suppose I suppose because I don't like I know that people face structural injustice but I also think other people whine right (laughs) and I'm thinking to myself sometimes when I hear people talking about various things I think you're not the 13 year old Margaret Beaufort with your guts falling out of you a baby and a dead husband yeah back in Pembroke Castle are you yeah (laughs) Well, you've got, we've all got the same 24 hours as Margaret Beaufort. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And also then, I, I liked her lots when I just thought she was very powerful and uh, like organising and conniving. Then right. I found that she loved to gamble. Oh, brilliant. And that she was massively generous to the people around her. And she also liked a bit of bling. So she was a real person, basically. So she, she, yeah, and I would, I would love to write a novel about her, but but what? I think you should from doing so 
is the only way you can tell the story today, the fact that her husband was 25 and she was 13 when they married. Okay, yeah. It's okay. grim. Yeah? yeah, it is grim. And yet she didn't think it was and she always revered his memory. But by the standards, it... Yeah, exactly. So, so I'll have to find. I, I'll have to think of a clever way of doing it, make, make, without making it sound like an apologia for paedophilia, which it certainly would not be. But, but yeah, um, I understand the difficulty with that and how that might come over. I think that what you do is by looking at it in past tense and do that as memory from her. Um, and don't mention her age. Yeah, and and the other thing is that I sort of have this view that her husband's father was the squire who just a squire who just married a squire. just a squire who married the widow of henry v okay and he was said to be so good looking and so attractive right uh the one story is she was traveling over a bridge and he was swimming in the river and she was just like i have got to have a piece of this yeah right <laughs> and so I'm thinking to myself, there's this sort of idea in the story of women having sexual agency. Yes. Which and that, is... That's a freak out subject for people even now. Yes. Sexual agency amongst women terrifies even modern yeah. audiences. So, so I suppose what I'm terrified of is what if I wrote a story in which the very young Margaret Beaufort actually was attracted to her husband yeah I think that would be difficult for people <laughs> yes. and I think it <laughs> it would be difficult for people for understandable reasons absolutely 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 um, even with the even with the historical context of the fact that you kind of had to get going early because you could reasonably expect to be dead by 25 <laughs> exactly exactly um I, I think it's still, yeah, probably not that palatable. <laughs> no, unfortunately. So, so another time, another time may come. Another but time may come. Quite you awful. might find a way to frame it. I don't know. I but don't I also know. quite maybe will instead write a book about about the the, the her husband's her father-in-law, effectively, because um, Owen Tudor, because he was he was a he was a creature. I mean, he's just he's just like. Yomping around in the court in a very minor job. And the Queen says, marry me. <laughs> what? And he goes, well, I, don't, I don't mind if I do. I bet he didn't. And my, my father used to tell a story about this, which was that Tudor didn't speak English very well and neither did Catherine of Valois. Right. And they found themselves surrounded by a lot of people honking loudly in English. Of course. And... They were just like sitting in a corner, not really understanding what was going on. And then they decided to talk to each other. Which would be quite a cute thing. That's lovely, actually. <laughs> yes. That's lovely. Yeah, I like that. Anyway, listen. Anyway. Look at the time. That's a lot of air. Let's just that is milled. a lot of air to be milled. And thank you for answering my question. But I have not. We, we'll have to leave. We'll have to park until next week. The question I was going to ask about the thing I've learned about, which oh gosh, yeah, I forgot about that, which is about limbic capitalism. Bring and it next time. 
And we are we are parking limbic doing it. Capitalism. We're doing limbic capitalism, which I can't even say next time. But it fits in very much with games. Okay. So that's the that's the sounds point. good. Sounds good. Excellent. Thank you if you've stuck with us um, through that very 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 dark first hour. Thank you for being here at the end. You can email us at millingtheair at gmail .com. I did check it today. No one has emailed, but I guess that means we haven't upset anyone either. Brilliant. <laughs> Um, and we've had nearly a hundred listens, so that's great. And we'll um, we'll we'll see you again next week. See you again next week. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.